Do you need, do you need water? Do you need no, I got some coffee. Good morning, everyone. I'm Peter, Recovered Alcoholic. And uh, my friend just reminded me that today is the, uh, Dr. Bob's day of passing, November 16, 1950. And um, someone who sponsored over 5,000 people, and obviously one of our co-founders. So I think it would be only appropriate if we took uh, just about a half a minute in silence and, and, and just remembering the great works that God allowed Dr. Bob to do. Okay. So, um, what a long, strange trip this has been, I'll tell you. Um, it's been great. Um, I always talk about this uh, uh, getting, uh, having attachments. Attachments will kill you. Um, yet, every time I do one of these deals, uh, by the time, you know, Sunday rolls around, I'm attached. And, uh, Although I'm looking forward to getting home, it's, um, it, I feel like I know some of you folks for forever. And um, so it's been a blast. And every time I come to Canada, you guys treat me uh, like family. And I, I really appreciate uh, uh, what you guys have done. Um, it's part of carrying this message, huh? Um, Step 12 says, uh, having had a spiritual awakening, um, we're supposed to carry this message to other alcoholics. Um, the spiritual awakening as the result of these steps and then to practice these principles in all our affairs. And uh, that is the one that we can struggle with about practicing these principles in all our affairs. And the joke is always, I hope you have more principles than affairs. Um, and how am I doing in my home's occupation affairs? How am I doing uh, walking around? How am I doing other than the AA meeting? Um, and there's so much to the step, we just don't have the time this morning. What I wanted to, to go to was a couple of things um, uh, in meditation. This came to me this morning. And it talks about what we do for the alcoholic. And I'm just going to flip that in a second. It says on page 96, he may or she may be broke or homeless. If he is, you might try to help him about getting a job or give him a little financial assistance. But you shouldn't deprive your family or creditors of the money they, they should have. Perhaps you want to take the man into your home for a few days, before, uh, but be sure to get to use discretion. Um, the next page it says, uh, Helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. Uh, you should act a good Samaritan every day if need be. Then it says, and this is for us helping the new one, it may be the loss of many nights' sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money, your home, counseling frantic wives, relatives, and normal trips to police courts, etc. It says your phone may ring at any time during the night. That's what we're up against uh, when we're trying to help someone. What about applying it to what those folks did for us when we came in? Because we were on the other side. How many times did we interrupt their day 
because we were in crisis? How many times did they loan us money because we had none? How many folks, this has all happened to me, let me into their home, that gentleman in Minnesota, because I wasn't sure where to go anymore. Gave me a lead on a job or gave me a job. Gave me food. Gave me a heavy coat in Minnesota because I had none and would take me to, to meetings. And when I was uh, in a halfway house and, and these people were taking me around, my dad would be going ballistic as to when this was going to end and all this nonsense was going to stop. And a drunk would get on the phone and say, you know, Mr. Marinelli, your son is with us. It's going to be okay. This is what he's up. Things like this. This is what you guys did for me and my family. So I can look at this as look at the hard work I have done for other drunks, quickly forgetting that they did it for me and my family. And it kind of gives you a lump in your throat. Because we're going to be doing it for someone else, and they're going to be doing it for someone else. And it's a two-way street here. And I am not immune from needing help from other people. There might come a time, and I have many times in my recovery, had to lean on people. Um, there was a time uh, I was working in Minnesota, in, this, uh, in uh, Texas, and his job didn't work out. And I had very little money, and i uh, wondering who's going to hire me and where do I turn. And uh, there were some guys that I sponsor, older guys that I sponsor in South Jersey, who came to, they circled a wagon. And uh, they were holding me up, and uh, they were asking me, how much money you need? What do you need? You know, your mortgage paid, your rent paid, you need money for food, what, what do you need? One guy went into his pocket and just says, the guy I sponsor, he's sober longer than I am. And he says, put this in your pocket, no questions. You've done so much for me. Now, me being me, I'm not going to take the money because I'm full of pride. He says, you deny me the chance of helping someone who's helped me. This is what my guys who I sponsor were doing for me to hold me up. And they were taking me to a meeting like I was a new guy because they knew I was so busted up. Um, this job went south in this old relationship went south and everything collapsed and the guys I sponsored who I gave all that time to and got all the gray hair from they were showing up for me now and I can tell you that that there's uh one, two, three, four, four men in South Jersey uh that I and I don't give the slips I trust my life with I trust them with my life and that's uh Jimmy A Freddie M Eddie G and Ian uh, L. Those four guys, I trust them with my life. Uh, those are members of Alcoholics Anonymous who at one time, if you put $10 on a table, they'd steal it. The way I would. Right. So it's the conversion that happens. Um, another piece to this uh, 12-step work is, uh, and I ran into this, uh, and I see a lot of folks running into this, and regardless of how long you're sober, this might happen from time to time. You get the drunk that you fall in love with. You know those, those men or women, they just they get you here, and you want it for them more than they do, and you lose night, nights sleeping because you're worried if they're going to be okay, and you sponsor 5 or 10 or 15 people. you got this one drunk who can't get it, and that's the one that, it gets your heart. And um, we want it more for them than they do. Page 96 tells me exactly what to do on this. It says, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you, ha- what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man or woman who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. I can't get in the way of someone's bottom. 
To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny another alky an opportunity to live and be happy. Our fellowship failed entirely with its first, one of our fellows, Bill, failed with the first half a dozen or so he tried working with. So while I'm trying to give it to this guy who, who I re- really want to get sober, I'm missing or I can't hear the guy banging on my back door saying, please, I'll do anything. And that sometimes is difficult for us to do, is just let them bottom out. But we have to, because we miss the rest who really want what we have to offer. Um, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in 1988, uh, this time around, um, I didn't, I was in Minnesota, I didn't look too healthy. Um, I'm sure I didn't sound real healthy. Um, I had a ton of old ideas and behaviors. Um, I was acting out in a lot of different ways. Uh, but those men in Alcoholics Anonymous got that. They didn't assassinate my character. I'm sure everyone wasn't thrilled to see me show up. I would pin myself against the back wall and take inventory and be scared to death. But they would always invite me over. And as I was sharing the other day, they would take me to meetings and take me to the diner and really help me out. When I came back to New York, I was brought to my first home group called the Free Spirit Group in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, where, by the way, the only requirement for membership there is a pinky ring, sunglasses, and gold jewelry. Uh, these guys change how it works and how you're doing. Um, uh, but what they did was they knew I was new. And you know how you walk in, you want to show you like you got it together. And they said, he's new. And um, they did the same thing that Minnesota folks did. Uh, they let me sit with them. And I got my first sponsor there. And he began this journey through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was coming up on my first year. And I, I just home from Minnesota. And the group had a policy where you had to attend three consecutive business meetings. That meant three months in a row to be able to celebrate your anniversary there. And I just landed. And I remember what the group did. They changed the group conscience just for me because I was new. I was one of their their homies, if you will. I left home to get well. Now I'm back. You know. And uh, they says, we, Peter's here. He just got back from Minnesota. Uh, June is up and coming. Um, can we change group policy so he can make his first year with us? And the whole group said, absolutely. And I I remember I almost wept, big tough guy, almost wept at the table that they would do something like that. It's those little things that we feed the newcomers that reel them in, that make them feel this is their home. And again, they weren't shooting the wounded. Huh? Um, a lot of uh, new folks, unfortunately, don't get the opportunity that some of us in the 20s got, and certainly the old-timers did a whole lot of, and that's the 12-step call. I was at a meeting in Brooklyn uh, years ago, and a wet one came down. And this meeting was, oh, maybe 200, 250, 300 people on a Sunday. It was jammed. And um, there was usually a leader and two speakers. Anniversary, it looked like Yankee Stadium, and this place was packed. And a wet one came down, and we have this famous bridge called the Verrazano Bridge. It was basically right across the street from the meeting, a couple blocks away. And they would be under the bridge and by the, by the water, by the parkway. They, they, this were the, the, the bottleneck gang, we call them, and they'd come in. And this one guy was wet, and he was drunk, and he was there for coffee and donuts. And what some of the members did went, oh my God, he's drunk, and he smells funny and they ran for the hills 
And I'm sitting there going, but it's Alcoholics Anonymous. We're, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so me, um, I go over and I sit down with the guy and I bring him a cup of coffee. And he really was there. He was there for a cup of coffee, some shelter, and a couple of donuts. But you don't know if you plant the seed tomorrow, it might grow. And so I'm trying to have some conversation with this guy. And I cannot tell you how many of those group members thought a lunacy commission should be appointed for me talking to a wet one. But we know that's what we do. And they may not be coherent. They may have to still clear up a little bit before they get it. But how do I know that may not remember some of the things I told them and know, hey, I can remember that guy. I'm going to go back there. And at the end of the day, I keep me sober by doing work like that. 12-step calls are incredible. Um, I remember uh, asking a, a group, do you think you can go into a house and get a, a, a drunk or a dauphine who has bottles of liquor around or has powder all over, syringes, crack, whatever it is. Can you go in that house? Can you clean up everything, toss it away, clean up the drunk, and leave and not pick up? And a few people say, oh, I can never do that. Oh, that's dangerous. You can't do that. It would, it would screw me up. I need a meeting. That's all a lie. The truth is, people like us, if we're spiritually fit, we do the 12-step call with someone else for backup, for safety, really, to get some support. But I've done it, and countless others have gotten the liquor and poured it down, got the powder, threw it down the, 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 the toilet, got the, the syringes, threw them out, the crack pipes, threw them out, the pills, flushed them, and you get the drunk and you walk out and you're okay. In fact, you're a better man or woman on the way out than you went in because you did God's work. He could have gave this message, as I said the other day, to anyone, but he gave it to folks like us. Because we know that. We know loneliness only as few do. And we get the ability to save lives like that. And if you're not in that place yet, if you do this work, you will be able to get that to that place. And with the 12-step call, it's really important that women go 12-step women and men go 12-step men. And a few times I've gotten a call from folks and say, Mary's in trouble, uh, can you round up some drunks? And I would be the driver, and I call up a few of the ladies in AA, and I drive them there, and they do all the work, and when I drive her to detox. But I'm not going to be hands-on with something like that. That can get a little funky. You know, uh, and vice versa as well. Uh, Twelve-step calls. I touched on this. I think it was last night. I've gone into. I used to be on the intergroup hotline. They would say, "Hey, we got a drunk, and you take him to a meeting." And usually, it was a drunk just looking for a meeting. But occasionally, you get the twelve-step call. And I'm going to a neighborhood I don't know, and I don't know who I'm knocking on the door. Who's going to be in there? Or sometimes a hotel room, which is really funky. Uh, so I'll round up a couple of guys. And my method is this. If the guy is, uh, I get a little background on him, say he's a blue-collar guy, then I can take the lead on this. Perhaps he's a professional white-collar guy. I'll get someone who speaks that language, where they could identify with that kind of language. They talk a little bit more proper than perhaps I do, and he'll take the lead. Another guy is going to go look in the house to see if anyone's hiding out, any weapons in the house, because this has happened to me. And once the coast is clear, we'll work with the drunk. It's very interesting when you're talking to a drunk and they start having a nervous breakdown in front of you, all pass out. 
Um, I don't know if anyone's done a 12-step call and they stop breaking things and smashing things. That happened to me a couple of times. I didn't have to call 911, though. We kind of calmed them down a bit. Uh, in fact, the last one I did was in, I just got to Florida. And we had to go into this, this flea bag motel. About four of us showed up. And I took the lead. I went in. And I can be very much like a general and an admiral when I do this stuff. I let them know there's one boss in the room right now, and that's me. And I have and no wavering. Because you know how we are. If, we, if you're a little vulnerable, I'm going right through you. You know, so uh, I walked in. I did my best Robert De Niro here. And um, this guy, um, he was a mess. And he had, he had puked on himself, and it was all over him, and he dried up on him. It was just scary. It was ugly. And uh, he didn't smell too good. And he has this breakdown. He can't stop crying. And then he's throwing the pillows and he's picking up the chin. So we had to kind of wrestle him, and then he kind of almost passed out on us. I got a little nervous. And then, you know, he pops up, and we start talking again. <laughs> you know, you know. What are you guys doing here? You know, I'm all right, I'm all right. And... Uh, we had to, he, this was the funny thing uh, he's, he kept saying like you're making a big deal out of nothing and we had to carry him down the steps man his legs were just you know like kind of flopping down the steps and um, we took him to a detox in Fort Lauderdale and he was out the next day walked right out my first 12-step call was like that. Um, there was a, a gentleman who, when I was out there uh, using narcotics, um, this guy, when he was healthy, was, um, was feared by a lot of people in South Brooklyn. No one would screw with this guy. He was a rough, tough you know, gangster kind of guy. And uh, he adored me. I was like his kid brother. And a few times uh, people pulled pistols on me, and he happened to show up. And they saw, I call him Joe, they saw Joe show up. And he said, oh, we didn't know who was with you. And I, I dodged a lot of bullets. And um, um, he, he kept me out of harm's way. Now I'm sober, and he's still dying. And it broke my heart. And I got an old-timer, and um, uh, he, this guy was sober maybe 30 years at the time, we threw Joe in the car, and we took him to a place called Coney Island Hospital in Brooklyn. And I watched this guy who was a bit of a street hero to me, even though he was a dauphin. He was still like, you know, this guy who looked out for me. And I'm watching him have a meltdown in the back seat. And this is my first 12-step call, and I'm petrified. And the old time, it kept telling me, it's okay, I got this one. And um, by the time we got there, he had wet himself and was crying. Then he was laughing. Then he was just talking like a very intelligent human being. So I really need to get sober and go to AA. I want to die. And, you know, it was just this up and down. And I'm in the front seat. I'm, oh, my God. And um, we take him into Cornell Hospital. Uh, we gave the nurse some money for him and I gave him a whole bunch of cigarettes. And the next morning I went to work. And who's on the corner? begging money is this guy again. My first 12-step call, I call my sponsor. He says, what did I do wrong? He says, did you stay sober? He says, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. You did God's work. You brought him to a hospital. Uh, maybe he'll, he'll want you to sponsor him. Uh, he died. Uh, this guy, I'll, again, I'm calling him Joe. He died in the street of, of AIDS. Um, he came from a really good family, too. And he was a moneymaker. He was a t I mean, he was something. When he was good, uh, really good-looking man, strong, tough, knew how to make some money. The woman thought he was Elvis Presley, and he died of AIDS in the street as a, a hardcore junkie. That's what this illness does to us. I'm here by inches and seconds. Um, 
I'm grateful for the people who carried the message to me and um, just in time. Um, I think of some of the messengers that God uh, sent to me, and they were all planting seeds until 1988 came. And when I finally got sober, they kept showing up again and again. That home group that I talked about, the Free Spirit Group, I remember um, I wasn't in a blackout, almost blind drunk, where you kind of remember bits and pieces. And I do remember standing in the back of the room, and the room was set up like a big U with the speaker in the front. I'm against the radiator because I was cold, you know, I was just standing against the radiator. And I raised my hand, and I remember dropping some F-bombs on the speaker, just getting really ugly. And I remember the folks giving me phone numbers and telling me, keep coming back. They didn't throw me out. And I show up in 1988, and I think they said, remember him? <laughs> Get him while we got a lucid interval. Uh, so, it, yeah. Um, now, before I go here, this is what I'm getting moved to talk about. Okay. Some of our families have done uh, bad things to us. Some of us come from really busted up families, alcoholic families. Some of us, our parents, maybe not in this room, but we know folks whose families were, were crackheads and junkies and, 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 and abusers and, and things like that. Um, as a person who claims to be recovered, I need to get past that and healed from that. And once arriving at that place, and there's different times for different people, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but when God shows up, God shows up. And I claim to be recovered and healed or healing from all of that stuff because we can't, we'd be delusional if we said none of us had, uh, had uh, someone step on our throat from time to time. Uh, innocent children getting abused. And we grew up with this, this baggage. But at what point... Do I continue to walk with that, even the loss of loved ones? Um, and at what point do I heal from that and forgive them for what they did? Not meaning we have to have a relationship with them, but forgive them for what they did. And start to realize the demons they were faced with. I want you to get all the demons I have and, and, and support me and walk me through that, even though I did terrible things and, and we all have our, our stuff. But when it comes to other folks, we don't do that. Now, there are certain issues, I don't want to you know, generalize, there are certain things that are very tough to get through, we know that. And certain people we probably should never be in their company again, sexual abusers and things like that. But in my heart, one of the many, any lens, because I'm a victim of sexual abuse that came out in step five, uh, I have to get to a place of forgiving. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we're going to break bread together and we're going to hang out, we're going to be buds now. It just means I've gotten myself unhooked from that pain. And something happens, it's a whole thing that goes on, a chemical that's released in the brain. It, we heal. We literally heal from it. And if I claim to have had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I claim to be recovered, I'm on a spiritual path, am I even willing to forgive some of those folks? Now, I had this, this, this person, uh, I'll call him a distant relative between ages 8 and 10, didn't do good things to me. And I woke up, I, I grew up feeling very dirty. There was a time in my life even questioned my sexuality. How did I let this man do this to me? But as I got older, I realized, eight and ten, what do you do? Nothing. And I was threatened if I told anyone, he would probably hurt me. And it goes on and on and on. So what do you do? There was no therapy back in the day. There wasn't a thing where, I've been, I need to go to therapy to talk about abuses. You shut your mouth. And you didn't even tell your mom or dad, because they would look at you like a sinner, which is what I was told, so you eat all of this. 
Well, I had to get to a point, and it was one of my, and he lends, if I'm really going to be able to practice these principles in all my past. If I want to be present, I can't be driven by the past. And if I want to move forward in the sunlight of the Spirit, I can't be driven by my past. So I had to forgive, and I prayed for the willingness to forgive this person. I found myself forgiving of this person. My dad made a ton of mistakes. My dad was, uh, he and I didn't get along growing up. I was deadly afraid, deathly afraid of him. Um, he was, uh, uh, like, a, I joke around, say he makes Tony Soprano look like Tinkerbell. But uh, as funny as that might sound, there's some truth to that. This guy had a reputation for hitting Timbuktu. And he was one of those guys, the, the, the street where was, you just don't screw with him. And uh, he got this, it was this guy larger than life. And he brought that kind of way of operating home. I'm the firstborn. I was supposed to, I felt like, be a gangster at five. Not watch Bugs Bunny cartoons. And growing up, I felt like I'm not a man. I'm like a wimp. And I was given a lot of verbal abuse. And it wasn't, it was not pretty. And the one who got in the middle of that was my mom. And then she died. I'm left with this guy. He's, oh my God. Just give me a drink. I'm out. I can't take it anymore. And there was a time in my life where I despised my dad. I hated him. I blamed him for everything. I blamed him for my mom's death. I blamed him for my abuse. I blamed him for I hated him. And uh, I remember sitting in treatment and, and just unloading on a therapist about if you had him for a dad, you'd be a drunk too. And um, forget, failing to realize uh, all the times he showed up and not wanting to even take a look at, he did the best he could with what he had. This is how he knew how to bring people. This is how he operated. And as I got sober, I started to talk to my dad about stuff. How at like six years old, he was on his own. My grandfather worked, and in that era, you go, don't go to school, you go work. And my dad was working at eight years old, and it was like that. So this is what you bring home, and you think that's the best way to go. Um, forgiveness. And as I got sober, I had to forgive. And I see a lot of folks coming into AA. F my parents, F my mom, F my dad, the hell with my brothers. I don't talk to them anymore, and they don't know what they're missing. Because even if we don't have a relationship with them, we're still not forgiving of them. And I need to forgive. And when I start to acquire the spirit of forgiveness, I get incredibly free. Here's what's happened to me. And I'm, I'm talking about this is part of practicing these principles and all my affairs. It doesn't say come into an AA meeting and be Moses for now and that's practicing these principles. They didn't talk about how we're supposed to be in a meeting. It's homes, occupations, and affairs. What has happened to me? This guy who was larger than his life, this Mickey Mantle if you will. How do I measure up to this? I like music. I was a gifted musician. I love sports. I was a good little jock. I love art. I dug the hippies growing up. And my dad said, where do we go wrong with this guy? Don't, I, I wanted to play catch and baseball with my dad. My dad knew what to do with a baseball bat, but it wasn't hit a ball. We were in trouble, I used to, you know, see my neighbors go to the games with their dad and, you know, father and something. And I thought my dad was like, just well, what did I, you know. How do I compete with this? Wherever I went, oh, you're Victor's son. Oh, you're Victor's son. Oh, you're Vic's son. Where, what, uh, hello, my name is Peter. Right? Asking for forgiveness and doing lots of inventory. I finally got to see my dad as flesh and blood. I finally got to see my dad as human. 
with all of his fears, his vulnerabilities, uh, 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 his humility, his loyalty, all the things. He just didn't do it the way I wanted him to do. And I start to see all the times he would try. Here's a guy to drive to the worst neighborhoods with a little photo of me with my uncle and say, this is my son. Here's to pay off the junkies. Tell me where he is. Where'd you see him last? Going to the most sordid spots. I start, my dad starts to come down from this, this pedestal onto the ground, and I got to see a guy who, who was married to a woman who was a dauphine and a drunk, and his wife. Now, he's young. She's young, trying to commit suicide regularly, in and out of institutions, trying to raise three boys. His wife dies. He's stuck with three boys, 14 down, 14, 11, and going on eight. How do you do this? trying to work and put all this together. And looking now at his, uh, 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 he's looking at his own mortality. That's 77, 78 now. And all his fears that he had, that's why he did what he did. What it allowed me to do was love this guy like a man. For the man he is. And forgive my mom. I was incredibly furious with my mom. I would never admit that. Ever. You don't, you, you, mom's mom. Dad, you can be pedo, well, p- p- angry with. Mom, mom, you don't do that with mom. It took me a long time to say, I'm angry, I'm furious. She just cut out and left. What a coward. I had to own that before I was able to forgive her for what she did. Forgive them for. They know not what they do as part of practicing these principles and our affairs. It's easy. I was talking to my friend here yesterday. It's easy to love you because you love me. Can I love my enemies? Unconditional love. I'm not talking about break and break. Can I, can I love you even though I know? Unconditional love. You don't really say good things about me. Am I willing to build a bridge? And I've done that. I know some, some folks down in uh, 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 where I used to live who, you know, would love to see me drunk. And what I did with folks like this was uh, I build a bridge. I offer the olive branch because that's what he would want me to do. Now they can walk over. I will carry them over, but at least I built the bridge. I don't need any dark shadows around my room, and I'm going to walk head up and shoulders square, and I'm not going to grovel before anyone. But part of that is me building the bridge to do that. And they may never cross over. They may always continue to character assassinate me. That's on them. I offer the olive branch. I'm free and clear. Part of practicing these principles in all my affairs. When I was able to get to a point of forgiving this person who abused me, where it doesn't take up any space in my head anymore, and I stopped feeling dirty and questioning my values as an eight-year-old boy, I knew God was working in my life. I got free. It allows me to be present to this moment, not driven by the past or fearful about the future. Do we have fears? Yeah. Do we get depressed? Yes. Do we get nervous? Yes. Do we get a joyous happy and free? Yeah. Are we euphoric? Yeah. Do we bottom out? Yeah. We get these little things. But overall, am I going up and down all the time? Was it just a nice, easy, chop wood and carry water life? Because if I'm consumed with me, I'm not practicing these principles in all my affairs. I'm a fraud. I'm claiming I am, but I'm not. And this is only to touch a God's hand, and I need to do all the work that's involved. And we're really good at talking about working with the drunk and sponsorship. And, and, you know, you can split hairs. I've seen people go to war on you're not doing the book and you're not doing the book. And I sponsor this way. And Come on, man. If we're in the book, we're in the book. Everyone has a different influence. We have the bulldog sponsors. We have the the kind sponsors. We're just different uh, uh, interpretations of the book. But we're in the book. You can't help. You can't hurt anyone. 
How am I doing when I get up and then get out there? Practicing these principles in all my affairs. There's a cat down in South Florida. Uh, I sponsored him for a while, and I had a, I, I, I can't work with him anymore. This guy had the woman lined up outside his door, 13-stepping, one after the other. The guy knew the book better than the authors. The guy would say, oh, you missed the comma in the third sentence, fourth paragraph. I mean, he was one of these guys. And I'm trying to sponsor him. First of all, he, was, he looked, his hygiene looked like he had one day back, and I talked to him about that. I said, we can't walk around looking like this anymore. You need to shave, you need to take a shower, you need to go to the dentist, you need to go to the doctor, and you start dressing. This is unacceptable. I'm not going to sit with you. You're sober a long time now. And then I start to hear some things about this guy, and he confessed to me that he's been 13-step. And I said, well, that's going to stop as of now where you find another sponsor. The guy knows the book, speaking around town. People saying, boy, that guy knows the book. He really knows the book. But I know his personal life, and he had them lined up outside the door. 13-stepping regularly. He's still 13-stepping. I don't sponsor him. He's not practicing these principles in his affairs. So him and his book can go where, wherever he wants to go. Uh, Sunday morning, I don't want to get angry. People like that kill people in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I was in the airport. Um, I was flying from New Jersey to Tampa to do a talk. It was a Monday night talk, one event. And uh, I'm at the airport Monday morning. And uh, as airports do, they completely screw things up from time to time. And uh, my, my flight got shut down. And we were delayed a few hours. So I said, wow, I'm not going to make this thing, and i got to get in touch with these folks. And they put us on another flight. And we had to go to that desk. And you know how people are at the airports. By the way, if you want to see human behavior at its worst, just spend a day in the airport. <laughs> Etiquette goes out, leaves, stays in the car when they get in the airport. And... Um, so everyone's at the desk, and they're banging on the desk, they're cursing, they're hollering, they're attacking this poor woman because they want to get to where they got to go to, and I'm the most important person in the airport. And something came over to me. As I got up to I'm seeing this woman, she's doing all this stuff and looking up, and the people are screaming, I'm next. And I said to her, I said, are you okay? And for a split second, she stopped. And she just looked at me and kind of took a beat. And she says, it's crazy today. I said, well, take your time. I have some time. And um, she took care of my business and went back to her work. And what God allowed me to do was stop her craziness for one minute. Because I could have gone up there and said, well, where's my ticket? I'm an AA. i got to speak. You have to get me there first. <laughs> and something else came over to me because I felt for this poor woman who was getting hammered by everyone. And she's just working. And sometimes we can do things like that. Just slow someone down. You know, you know how we get, especially newcomers, they're going, they're going, just, just take a breath and just let's talk. Practicing these principles in all my affairs. It's real. How can I practice these principles in all my affairs when others around, them are, others around me are not? When I'm in a sordid spot, when I'm in that AA meeting that's just completely off the chain, when the holidays are coming, visiting family and in-laws, how's that looking? And Uncle Joe is drunk again, and Aunt Mary's trying to sleep with Uncle Frank. I mean, how's this, you know, how's this going? Or you get around your grandparents or your parents or whoever it might be, and they're reminding you of all your shenanigans. I remember when you took my jewelry. Ha, ha, ha. You know, how do I do with that stuff? Right? 
practicing these principles in all my affairs, uh, which also means I'm going to take care of my health. Everyone's been teasing me about I don't eat. Uh, it's part of taking care of my health. When I travel, when I do these things, I just pick a little here and pick a little there because I know how my body reacts to certain food. And so uh, it's part of practicing these principles in my affairs, taking care of my body. So I want to gorge and then be sick and can't come to the podium or get sick at an airport or just get sick. So I take care of my body that way. Um, I'm, I'm not a gym guy. I, I'm not like going into the gym and lifting weights. I used to, I find it very boring, but I love running and bike riding. So we get out to do that. And in Florida, it's an easy thing to do a couple of times a week and, and ride and, and keep in shape and, and, and diet and exercise and things like that. Um, I go to a doctor, uh, I, I, December, uh, my annual physical. I've been doing that for about 15 years now. And I do all the work necessary. And as you get older, it's a must. And uh, take care of that. And I'm at a dentist a few times a year and taking care of that. So I do things like this, part of practice these principles in all my affairs. Uh, what was the catalyst for that? I was on the West Coast one time speaking at a Christmas um, event. And uh, this gentleman who was sharing, uh, I had heard about him, and he had a reputation as being a real big book thumper kind of guy. And I met him, and he was probably at least 200 pounds overweight, and he was running around with untreated uh, diabetes. His legs were purple and swollen, and, and uh, it was just nasty. Yet he was up there pontificating out of the book. I said, what's wrong with this picture, and where the hell is his sponsor? And I found out he didn't have one. There was no accountability. So I said, I don't want to be like that. We have powers of example and horrors of example. And I don't want to be like that. And I spoke to my sponsor, well, you ought to be doing that. And that's what I did. So I take care of my body as best I can. Am I perfect at it? No, absolutely not. Uh, I take care of my hair better than my own body sometimes. I mean, that's, that's important, by the way. Vanity is good. <laughs> uh, in Boca Raton, vanity is a number one priority. Trust me. Uh, very few real women walking around, and guys, if you know what I mean. There's 60-year-old men with jet black hair. I mean, I, you know, shoe polish, you know. And... Uh, it's very interesting, uh, uh, but I try to do the best I can. And um, what I do for, the, you know, what we do for the least of others, I do uh, f for him. And uh, one of the things that, uh, and this was an easy one, um, the less fortunate. We have some homeless uh, in, uh, running around Federal Highway where, where I work and stuff, and you know, they come out of church and they're there. I... Um, I go to this one meeting in Fort Lauderdale, come up to exit 29 on, on uh, 95 South, and there's a guy up there all the time with a sign, you know, homeless need food, maybe needs drink. Uh, if I don't, if I catch the red light and I stop, I give this guy money all the time. I feed the homeless, I give them money. And I'm saying that to brag. But what I do for the least of us, I do to him. Because they're God's children. That's someone's son or daughter walking around who was the apple of mama's eye at one time, and they went south. They lost their way. And they're homeless, and they smell, and they're dirty, and they live in a cardboard box. How dare I just step right over them and say, oh, my God, get these people out of here. No, I'll bring them a sandwich. I'll give them a couple of bucks all the time. Right? I was pumping gas uh, a couple of months ago, and this uh, guy drives up in a car, a moving violation, with his whole life in it. 
and this woman next to him. And he came up to me, excuse me, I said, he's going to ask me some money, not a problem. As long as it was, you know, the, the guy wasn't trying to rip me off. You just got to be aware. And uh, I felt terrible. He says, I'm trying to get to the shelter in Fort Lauderdale. I'm about to run out of gas. Can you give me like 10 bucks for gas? So I told him, pull up to the pump, and I filled his car up with gas. And that's all he wanted. And I looked in the car, and his, his wife um, you can tell she was just she was suffering from this the humiliation i'm going to a shelter my life's in my backseat whatever happened whether it were dauphines or drunks i don't even care but they you can see it all over her face what a mess how did i get here i've been there i've been where that kid has been how dare i say no stay away from me. i have a pocket full of money 20 bucks i'm not going to miss it I buy two cigars, it's 20 bucks. I mean, come on, what's the big deal? And so I filled up his car with gas, and the guy was just so grateful and just drove away. We pulled out, and this is how he pulled out, went up to the light, made a U turn, and was headed up to Fort Lauderdale towards the shelter. Practicing these principles, all my friends, I could have said no. No, I can't, I can't help you, you know. You're homeless, don't come near me. I'll see you at an AA meeting, a good AA meeting on Park Avenue, you know. what we do. So um, I try to teach the men I sponsor to do things like that as well. Because um, they're going to look at what I'm doing and they're going to do the same. Uh, I walk into a group and the group is moving. The group is alive. People are talking. You know, everybody's talking and, and everyone's having fun and cutting up and somebody's in a corner working with somebody and there's that juice in the AA meeting. It's incredible. And then the meeting starts and it, it, the solution is being kicked out and it's, it's almost a revival. It's a great thing. And you feel good when you leave. And you have some newfound friends and some old friends and you had your meeting, your home group, whatever it might be. And then you could walk into a meeting and there's nothing. And the group is off breaking traditions and, and there's dumping and, and a singleness of purposes out there when you have no idea what's going on. I don't look at the newcomer. I look at the elders of that group. Who are the elder statesmen? Do you have any elder statesmen? Do you have bleeding deacons? What's the deal like? Because that's part of taking this message into my, into my group. I have a responsibility to my home group. If it's broken, fix it. Don't cut and run. Bring the literature in. To illustrate, I was a member of the Free Spirit Group. When I first got there, it was, full. It was, it was just full. It was, you couldn't get in the place, and then it fell apart. We had a Wednesday night meeting with a leader and two speakers. There were maybe six or seven, eight group members, and there were 11 people in the room. The three speakers and the eight group members, and that was it. What's wrong? We couldn't even pay the rent. Anniversary time, you know, 100 people show up for their, their cake, and then, but after that, was gone. And I said, let's do this. Let's start a big book meeting. Let's have one speaker come in who knows the book, talk an hour about their experience with the 12 steps. And someone went, absolutely not. We're going to not start that. Let's not panic. And I caught holy hell for this. But the group voted to do it. The first night we did it, there was 200 people in the room. And it was like that every Wednesday night for a while. I had a responsibility to take that risk, to bring the message in, to breathe some life back into my home group. And one thing we're going to do when we're practicing these principles and all our prayers and talking about this book, we're going to get some heat. We're going to catch heat. 
We're going to experience resistance. We're going to get thrown under a bus. My God went to the cross for guys like me. I can take a little heat for some of the things I say. No, no problem. It's light. You know, and if they don't want it, you dust off your sandals and go on to the next house and pass the message there. Practicing these principles, all my affairs. Welcome to the NFL. Huh? Huh? Well, up here to CFL, I guess you call it, right? <laughs> the NHL. Now you got it. Okay. You guys are tough on Sunday morning. More coffee. <laughs> Okay, coffee. Okay. Lastly, uh, one more thing I should say. It says this. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Ensure immunity. It's a promise. As intensive work with other alcoholics, which means we're going to go through this book together. I'm not going to say I'll take you to a meeting that's car service. You're taking a guy to maybe where a message might be shared. We're working. We're going to walk through this together. Intensive work with other alcoholics, which means we don't forget their families either. It works when other activities fail. Everyone, all my teachers, especially the elders, would say, go work with a drunk, go work with a drunk. You got a problem, go work with a drunk. Good day, go work with a drunk. Bad day, go work with a drunk. Just go talk to a drunk, because the civilians out there don't get us. What do you mean you have fear? What do you mean you're insecure today? Well, I don't, I don't understand what that means. You know, what do you mean someone's soulful? You want to pray forgiveness? Go beat them up. Get it over with. You know, they they operate different. I'm about to see about a thousand of them when I get to the airport. It's a strange thing. It says, uh, carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new, new meaning, is it? To watch people recover, am I? To see them help others, do I see this? You sponsor someone, and six months later you see them working with someone else. To watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Then it tells me this, frequent contact with newcomers, the ones who are banged up and not proper. They tell me that's the bright spot of my life. Civilians would never get that. So before I close, I'll tell you a story, and then i got to get out of here. My uh, youngest brother, we couldn't understand what was going on with him. And he's an actor, and we figured some of his depression was because of the business. And you need a thick skin to be, to be in, that, in that entertainment business. But uh, he was cycling out of uh, uh, hypomania and, and super depression, and the depression bouts were getting longer and deeper. And I just got back from Texas, and my brother was visiting uh, uh, New Jersey with my dad. And uh, I walked in the door, and the phone rang. I was a Sunday night, which was odd for my dad to call me. He says, uh, did you get in? yet. He said, can you come? Your brother's here. Come to the house. I don't know what to do with him. I'm about to call 911. And I beelined to Fort Lee, New Jersey, about an hour drive from where I was living in Union. And my brother, who's as big as you, big strappy guy, yeah, is having a meltdown. He's crying uncontrollably, and he's talking. He's saying things like, my life's not worth it. I don't know what to I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm alone. And, you know, my dad said, what, what do you mean we're right here? My dad didn't get it. I know what he was talking about. You can be in Yankee Stadium and feel alone. And so um, I talked to him, and I did my best AA work. 
And I took all my clinical training, even though I'm not a clinician, and I, here it was. All the things you taught me for my brother. And I got him breathing again, and I got him back again, and I had him talking again, and he settled down again, and we eventually got him to a doctor. He got his meds. He got on some meds for a while and kind of regulated the bipolar stuff, and he's doing really nicely now. It's been a while. Why do I bring that up? I ask some of the men that I sponsor uh, and some of the men that I know that I'm close to in AA, I share them what happened. I said, will you guys do me a favor? Will you call my brother? Some of them know my brother, Sonny. And they said, will you call my brother and just talk to him? Here's what's going on. And the reason why I did that, I says he kept talking about how lonely he was. He felt all alone. I'm abandoned, things like that. I says, we all know what that feels like as alcohol. We've all been there. You can talk to him about that. And every one of those guys did that. Not one call. They would call. And I remember my dad telling me, your brother's getting closer to more of those guys in AA. Yeah, I know. And so my brother was able to bond with, with us. And so AA showed up for my family again and help my brother kind of bridge that gap while he was going to a, a psych doc to get his meds regulated. He wasn't feeling alone. Because you know why? We didn't tell him, you shouldn't feel alone. You ought not do this. We, was, we would tell him, yeah, I, I know what that feels like. I was in the same place. I know exactly what's going on with you. You understand me like we understand each other. These men were practicing this, these principles in, in this affair with my kid brother. And that's why one of the reasons my brother Sonny loves AA. He loves us. Because he got to touch AA. And he's not even an alcoholic. That's my Alcoholics Anonymous. I said from a million podiums, I call it the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, where we get reborn and resurrected. If you haven't found out the sacredness of AA, I pray that you stick around long enough to experience the sacredness of this place called Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe. I got to suit up and show up and bring dignity and respect to this sacred place called AA and treat it the way it always treats me, with dignity and respect. Huh? That's all I got, guys. Peace. Thank you.